So people of God in Christ, some critics of the Christian faith and of the teachings of the Bible claim that Christianity is uh, simply the matter of inventing a problem in order to sell the solution. It's a common strategy uh, used within this world to sell things. You, you simply invent the problem, you convince people that they have a need, and, uh, and then you have at the ready the solution to fix it. Uh, this is really uh, the strategy of much uh, modern advertising. Uh, you have a problem. We're here to tell you. Uh, you have this problem and, and that need. Even more, you deserve what we have to offer you. So for five easy payments of twenty nine ninety five, uh, it can be yours. Problem solved. Need fulfilled. So when critics accuse us of doing this, I think we ought to be honest and ask the question, uh, is, is that what we're doing? Uh, uh, by preaching God's law for the conviction of sin, uh, along with the warning of a coming day of God's judgment, and then preaching the gospel as the answer to the problem of sin. Let's be honest. Let's, let's ask whether that's all we're really doing, inventing the problem and then offering the gospel as the answer. But the Apostle Paul was really up against the same thing. Um, so, so that his appeal was, from the beginning of his letter to the Romans, his appeal was to what people already know. Uh, do we remember how he uh, writes in Romans 1, "...for the wrath of God is revealed." from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And remember that, that he was not saying, uh, uh, boom, it is now revealed. I, I, I am revealing it. Here it is now, never uh, having before been seen or, or understood. No, we, uh, we should hear Romans 1.18 as Paul's very, very calm uh, quite matter-of-fact statement. He is, he is saying the wrath of God is evident. Everyone knows this. Everyone truly knows that there is a God. They know it by the creation round about them and within each person's conscience. And not only do they know that there is a God, but they know that they are in trouble with this God. And Paul goes on then to analyze human nature further. He, he teaches that the reason people create false gods, imagining for themselves some other god, and uh, the reason they even charge further into sin is because they don't want to have to face up to the one true God. The one they know exists, the one they know is their creator, the one they know is their judge, and their judge, certainly later in a coming day of judgment, but the God who is their judge even now. So is Paul inventing the problem of sin? Are we as 21st century Christians inventing this problem? We, we need to stand firm on, on reality. And we, and we need to keep pointing out the indicators, pointing them out to ourselves first, 
but also to the people around us. We all know that we didn't create ourselves. So who did? We all know that there is right and wrong, but where does that standard come from? We all know that we are going to die. So why does it matter? Why even think about something different? Why, why hope for something more? Here is the irony, although it is a bitter irony, that so much of God's truth is built right into the human mind and, and human existence. Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes 3, that, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Life is, is beautiful. God's creation is good, but it has a time to it. And beauty fades as quickly as it emerges. God has made everything beautiful in its time, writes wise Solomon, so that God has put eternity into man's heart. Things like beauty and eternity, truth, God himself. We, we know these things, yet we cannot comprehend them. God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. To put it another way, we, we know what we cannot comprehend and, and, and that sounds like a contradiction, but it's true. We know what we cannot comprehend. So that we have in our minds ideas, uh, vague recollections of things like God, eternity, perfection, hope. But where are these things? We know they, we know they exist, but where are they? And included in this list of things that we know exist but cannot comprehend is this thing called hope. In Romans 4.18, the Apostle Paul uses the word hope for the first time. Last time we we stopped at verse 17, and, and for some of you, that means that we stopped right in the middle of a sentence in your version. But the point is to emphasize, as we do now this morning, the introduction of hope in the book of Romans. And at least going by the the ESV, which I've now read to you and am preaching from, Paul will use the word hope 11 more times for a total of 12 times. I'm not meaning to make too much of that, uh, but it is interesting, 12 references to hope in Paul's letter to the Romans. But with this first reference, he even uses the word twice. In, in, in verse 18, it says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. The he here is Abraham, if you, if you recall, and And the reference is to God's promise to Abraham that as he looked up into the night sky, God told him to count the stars. Remember, it's it's one of the ifs that that, uh, is found in God's promises to Abraham, but it's not an if, it's not a condition that uh, Abraham had to meet in order to gain the blessing. 
Count the stars, said God, if you can count them, which of course you can't, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed. But even more, by faith, he was given hope. But here's the the thing to see, that in hope he believed against hope. If it helps, the, the, the New King James Version says, contrary to hope, in hope he believed. And the New International Version says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. But whichever way we, we are hearing of hope in, in that way that we ought to understand, there, there is this thing called hope. We understand that it's, it's a thing, as they say, uh, but we don't know where to find it. We, even more, we, we know that it really can't be found in this world so that we are left to, to grab at hope, uh, to reach out into seemingly thin air for something called hope. Another way to say it, uh, we, are, we are known to hope for hope. I hope that tomorrow I will be more hopeful than I am today. But then are we to hope for hope for hope? And then to hope for hope for hope for hope? While never really having any real hope at all. On one hand, we could say that there are two kinds of hope, or at least two meanings to the word hope. And even Paul is using both meanings. Someone asks us, uh, did you get that promotion at work? And we answer, well, I I don't know yet, but I sure hope so. In this way, hope only means longing, wanting, but not being sure. But God uses the word hope, and and the gospel gives us hope in a different way to speak of a sure hope, a joyful assurance, even an eager expectation for what is coming upon the return of Christ. And the thing to see is that in this way, faith and hope are really the same thing. At at, at least they are very closely related because Hebrews 11 verse 1 even says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. All within this one verse, again, Hebrews 11, verse 1, one one statement of teaching in Scripture, we get faith, we get assurance, we get hope, we get conviction. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But it's the same in Hebrews 11 as it is in Romans 4. Where does hope come from? It comes from God. And how does it come? It comes by the the promises of God in Christ. And and what can it do for us? It, It gives us conviction to hope against hope, or to hope against all hope. In the first part of his letter to the Romans, Paul is really, if you think about it, he's really intent upon dashing hopes, destroying false hope. He wants to get rid of the hope by which we say, well, I can only hope. I sure hope so. 
In the first part of his letter, Paul is saying, he is, he is teaching, quit your foolish hoping. Give it up, left to ourselves. Left, uh, left to ourselves, let us not expect anything more than wrath and judgment from a holy God. Under the law of God, there is only despair. There's no hope. There is only despair. But now here is the gospel of hope. Not a, not a new way to say, well, I can only hope, but the opportunity to hope against hope, to hope with assurance and even with joy. But there is the matter of both faith and unbelief. In verse 19, Paul writes, Of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So this takes us back to where Abraham was when God made his covenant promises to him. Abraham himself was an old man. His wife uh, was decades beyond menopause, or as the Bible puts it, beyond the way of women. It was an impossibility for Abraham and Sarah to have even one child. So then think of this, that, that when, when God first made his promise to Abraham uh, that he would be a great father of many, there was still a chance. Sarah was already considered barren, but there was still time. Uh, there was still a chance uh, that Sarah might yet conceive. But then the years began to tick by. And, uh, and all chance disappeared. Time ran out on them. And uh, once time ran out on them, uh, God still gave his promise over and over again. In fact, through the whole thing, Abraham continued to hear uh, or, or continued to bear the name Abraham, meaning great father. I once heard it put this way in a sermon that uh, Abraham probably had to deal with the, the snickers, uh, the laughter, if not the outright mockery of the people around him. Hello, my name is Abraham. Ah, Abraham, came the response. Great father of many descendants. So, how many children do you have? Well, none right now. And then the conversation probably turned to inward thought. This man is named Abraham, meaning father of, of many. He's 80 years old. He's 90 years old. He hasn't switched to a younger wife, as old men often do. His wife herself is old enough to be a great grandmother. Talk about someone who never lived up to his name. But Paul teaches that Abraham continued to believe. To start with, Paul writes, In hope he believed against hope that he would be the father of many nations. But Paul even puts it in the superlative. In verse 19, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
But verse 20 says more. No unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. How do we understand this teaching, this, this claim from Paul? We know, as, as Paul himself surely knew, that Abraham did. He did struggle with unbelief. As Sarah struggled with unbelief, she suggested to Abraham, Here, take my servant as a, as a second wife. Go into her. Maybe she can bear children for me. It will still be our offspring because she's my slave, and, and you will still be the father of the children she bears. And Abraham listened to Sarah, and, and the result was Ishmael. And in, and in Genesis 15, Scripture even records the, the doubting words. Can, can be no doubt that these are doubting words of Abraham. O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue child, childless. Behold, you have given me no offspring. And in verse 8, it becomes clear that Abraham was not just inquiring about how it will happen. He wasn't saying, huh, you know, Lord, it sure would be like to know I sure would like to know how this is going to happen. No, he was saying, what is happening? And, O Lord, how can I know that I shall possess it? So how can Paul say of Abraham that he did not weaken in faith and that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God? Well, the answer comes in the rest of verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. If you don't recognize it, Paul is talking about the much later Abraham, the Abraham who had now been given the child Isaac, and who was Isaac? He was the miracle child, the, uh, the child born to a miracle mother and to a miracle father. Not even when God sent Christ into the world did he do it in this particular miraculous way. With Christ, it was a, a virgin mother and a virgin birth, a child born to a woman who could not possibly have conceived except for the power of God through the Holy Spirit. With Isaac, it was a lifelong barren woman who, decades after menopause, finally, impossibly, but wonderfully, she conceived. Abraham probably had a good night, and Sarah probably acquiesced to what husbands want, but she conceived. So Paul is talking about this, this much later Abraham. Isaac was now given to them laughter. Remember, Isaac means laughter. Laughter had been um, given to them. The, the laughter of unbelief had been overcome by the laughter of joy. But then God said to Abraham, kill him. Go to where I will show you and kill your son, your only son. Sacrifice him to me. And Abraham did go. By that point in his life, 
overwhelmed by the evidence of God's faithfulness. Abraham perhaps said within his heart, okay, if if God gave me this son, this miracle baby, he can give me another. I shall be Abraham, great father of many. Perhaps another child is coming. And and think that, that Abraham might have despaired. Kill him? I give up, Lord. What sense does that make? Isaac is my last hope. Isaac is my only hope. But as Paul puts it, Abraham had by that point grown strong in his faith so that his hope was not based on Isaac. His his hope was not based on the current blessings of God, but his hope was based on the promises of God and upon the character of God. As that character was made known to Abraham through many years of God's promises, of God's promises, and of God's faithfulness to his servant Abraham. So Paul is not doubting Abraham's doubt. Paul is not trying to cover up Abraham's weak faith and his failures. Abraham gave up his wife to another man, and he did it twice. Each time he did it thinking to save his own life. Abraham listened to his wife and and went into Hagar. Abraham challenged God, saying, What will you give me? Going back to Genesis 15, think about the word behold. As Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Imagine telling God to, to behold, to look. Uh, notice something here, Lord. I think you've missed something. I think you've forgotten something. Can you can you not see that something is missing here? Namely, that you haven't done what you've promised to do. So along with faith, along with faith, there will always be unbelief. Only let faith continue. Let the promise of God not be forgotten, and let us not despair of the promises of God. And let's finish then with our likeness to Abraham as a third point of application. Let's start by pointing out again that it's the same God, it's the same covenant promises, it's the same faith to which we are called. And we are in the same boat as Abraham. And I use that metaphor intentionally because it reminds me of the disciples. They found themselves in a a boat being swamped by the waves of a storm-tossed sea. There will always be cause for unbelief, which is to say there will always be the temptation to disbelieve. And we might even say, oh, oh, but Abraham, he, he had it worse. Uh, he had to keep believing even when he was an old man and his wife was, was beyond barren. No, Abraham didn't have it worse than us. It's the same thing. It's the same thing as being told, being promised, you are righteous in the sight of God. That's Paul's whole point here. This is what he 
is, in a sense, illustrating by using Abraham. Only the illustration is God's own illustration by the life and person of Abraham. How do we believe that we are righteous in the sight of God, righteous by the declaration of God when we are still sinners? How do we believe that by faith we will inherit the earth? How do we believe that heaven awaits us as we believe and forego the sinful pleasures of this life? We do so by faith. And we do so by hope against hope. The flesh is still with us. Satan himself accuses us. We are met with the conviction of our sin every day. But what has God promised? Christ has obeyed the law for us. Christ himself is our righteousness. Christ suffered and died in our place. In him, by by faith in him, we can hope against hope. Not hoping for hope, but hoping with confidence and with courage that on the day of judgment, in the day of reckoning, we will be judged righteous. We will be reckoned worthy of heaven. It brings to mind, for, for me at least, what, what Paul writes in Second Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies. These are words of hope. These are words of hope against hope. Here is Paul's testimony. In his life, there were many reasons, almost every reason it would seem to despair, to give up, to do what the world does, because he might as well eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow he's going to die. Well, that's the hope of this world. That's the hope that is really only despair. But the better hope, a true hope, a sure hope, is found in the promises of God. And it's the hope of faith. No one should blame you if you, if you go your way in sin and despair except that why would you not believe in Christ and claim the hope that is against hope along with joy and with peace? And I mentioned those uh, two further words, joy and peace, by way of preview, because that's where Paul is going next. He starts with hope, then he's going to talk about peace. And along with peace, he's going to bring in joy. This coming in Romans chapter 5. This is, this is not some ancient piece of literature. This is not just theology. This is the knowledge of faith. It begins with the knowledge of sin unto despair. 
And it continues with the gospel. By the knowledge of faith unto hope against hope, hope against despair. Let the world mock, but let us not miss that they mock even as they march in despair. Brothers and sisters, the gospel brings us hope. And as we will see next time, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's promises to us in him, also bring us peace and bring us joy. Let's anticipate the coming uh, ministry of God's word. And for now, let's uh, finish by bowing together in prayer. Father in heaven, we live in a world of despair. Left to ourselves, we are people, sinners of despair. But along comes the good news of Jesus Christ. Along comes your promises. And it's by those promises that we have hope. So Lord, so cement your promises within our hearts that we would indeed live with a true hope, a sure hope, even the anticipation of great glory upon the return of Christ as we live each and every day. And as we continue in your word, give us as well peace and give us great joy. Teach us these things and instill them within us by the faith that you give and form within each one of us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.